Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Devin Olson has been a member of Fly Fishing Team USA since 2006, winning individual bronze and team silver in the 2015 World Fly Fishing Championships in Bosnia. Once a salmon and steelhead biologist in Joseph, Oregon, Devin is a wealth of knowledge. In this episode of Anchored, we discuss how he got into competitive fly fishing, how it's structured, and how he used it to become the angler he is today. We discuss nymph specifics, lock fishing, history, temperature gradients, and more. Speaking of nymphs, we've also recently added a 12-part series featuring Skip Morris to AnchoredOutdoors.com. Skip's latest book, Top 12 Nymphs for Trout Streams, How, When, and Where to Fish Them, focuses on fly fishing and tying flies and guides you through 12 great nymph flies and how to catch trout on them in creeks, streams, and rivers. Accompanying a color photograph of each fly, Skip shares about each fly, what it imitates, and what it's designed to do. Then he tells you how to fish it effectively, when it fishes best, how deep in the water to fish it, and he offers the different fishing methods that make it catch fish. He describes those methods plainly so that you can go right out and make them work. Figuring out trout flies can be overwhelming for the new fly fisher and certainly confusing even for the old pro. So let's skip guide you through 12 great nymphs and how, when, and where to fish them. It's an entertaining read and I'll include the link here in the write-up, but you can also go to skip morris fly tyingcom and head on over to the shop page. So I was born and raised in Midvale, Utah, which is about 20 minutes south of Salt Lake City. So for those who've been to the capital of Utah, they've probably driven by the town that I lived in if they've gone north or south. What was it like growing up in Utah? Uh, 
Well, it's a good question. It's part of one of the reasons I was pretty eager to leave because when I was growing up, you know, it was still relatively small-ish. I mean, it was, I mean, it's a metropolitan area even when I was a kid, but there was still a lot of open space and and I had, you know, I had rivers and streams that were within 15 to 20 minutes of my house that I could beg rides from parents to go to and they weren't overly crowded and the place is just full now. It's It's gotten big really quick and you know there's a reason the proximity for folks who who like outdoor recreation is pretty hard to beat to uh have a, a city where they can have occupational concerns taken care of but also you know recreation out their back door it's it is good for that but now you just get to share it with a whole lot of folks yeah right well the little bit of fishing that i have done in utah um i just recall there being a lot of red dirt or red yeah, yeah. Mountains and, yeah. and small streams with decent fish. Uh-huh. And obviously you're yep. best known for nymphing. We're gonna obviously we're gonna cover a lot of this as we get going here. But um did you get to do any of of that sort of fishing when you lived there or were you too young when you oh lived? lots. Yeah. Oh no. No, I've well that's the thing. I've I've been back multiple times and lived there multiple times. I've I've lived in every almost every western state at this point. So I've lived in Utah. Idaho, Colorado, a couple times, Montana, Oregon, California, uh, and now Wyoming. So, uh, yeah, I've I've lived around the the Intermountain West and and even you know the West Coast a little bit. Um, Why? So yeah, I did plenty of I, uh, well, just different uh, jobs that you know I had over the years or going to school. Um, uh, also, my I moved the the one time we were in Idaho. I moved for my my wife's promotion that she got and finished at a different university than I was going to at the time. So, so yeah, it's been either school or work for the most part. I did plenty of small stream fishing in Utah. Um, In fact, that was some of my favorite. I mean, I grew up on the famous ones near near Salt Lake, but I I did plenty of venturing around to to the smaller water as well. Got it. And you said Wyoming now? Yeah, we live in Wyoming now. I love Wyoming. I was just there last summer and was uh, very disappointed with myself that I haven't been there sooner. So why Wyoming? Are you there for fishing, work, family? All the above, you know. Um, When we lived in Oregon, we lived in a really small town in Northeast Oregon. And, you know, I think like a lot of outdoorsy folks, uh, some sort of small mountain type town is always been high on our list of uh, the type of place we want to live, but also raise our kids. And uh, so, you know, basically we were there. I was still a fisheries biologist when at the time uh, that we were there. And then when I took on the shop full-time, uh, I started it there. And then when I t- we took it on full-time, we moved back to Utah, both uh, for my wife to go back to school, but also to make sure we weren't going to be destitute. We lived with my parents for a little bit to make sure that the shop was actually going to support us before we, you know, jumped fully in on um, the business full-time. And uh, so then once uh, we, we ended up moving out of my parents' house pretty quick, actually. But uh, but that's what took us back to Utah for a few years. Um, but that's now why we're in Wyoming, because we wanted to get back to that sort of small town, uh, mountain town atmosphere and uh, having you know, I've got a river in my neighborhood I can fish. Um, not right now because it's a flood stage, but, <laughs> but normally I can fish the river in my neighborhood and I have empty roads I can train on my bike on and, you know, the things that I want to do 
Now, for people who don't know your story, you just dropped a ton of little bits there. Yeah. Past that. Like I, I probably, I probably uh, fast forwarded. I, I hit that like the track button on the video. And you're like, like, and this, now but, we're 30 nope. years ahead. Yeah, exactly. That's so well. no, but it's great. It's great. Let's go back. So first of all, how old are you? Because you look so young for having done all this. I'm 38. Yeah. Okay. What? Well, yeah. Right. Got it. So yeah, about thirty years. Let's go back. So you, uh, you're in Utah. How did you get into fishing? Uh, you know, it's sort of a family affair. Um, I even have ancestry in Norway. That um, my on my grandmother's side, they were commercial fishermen, and I think it just kind of came through the bloodline one way or another. My my grandfather on my my dad's side was also a a fisherman and um he i don't know how back how far back the fly fishing goes but he was a fly fisherman he kind of chose either the worms or the flies depending upon what the conditions uh, uh spoke to at the time you know i think my dad Smart. was that way growing up a lot too um and so i had a i my parents have pictures of me with a fish that i'm holding up when i'm like 18 months old so it was kind of something that was shown to me early on and i I was either destined to love it or, or hate it. You know, like a lot of kids that grow up in fishing families. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds about right. So then from there you went to school. Did you just have a normal upbringing? Yeah, I would say it's pretty normal. Um, you know, typical suburban upbringing. My, uh, I, my, I grew up and my dad was, uh, he actually, when my grandfather was, um, kind of sick, in his seventies, my, my dad dropped out of university to help him run his business for the last few years he was alive. But my grandfather died, uh, when I was three, so I didn't really get to know him. He had a heart attack. Uh, so my dad just kind of slid into running that business of, you know, it was a remodeling business, like a general contractor and remodeling business. Um, so he did that when I was young and then he ended up becoming a woodshop teacher in high school. And then about that time, my mom also, went back and got her teaching certificate and she ended up teaching elementary for, um, well, 20 some odd years, but they're, they're both retired now. But, uh, so I, I grew up the, the son of two teachers essentially. And you are also now a teacher. Yeah. With fishing, uh, in, anyway. yeah one, one form or another, I suppose. Yeah. Did uh, you always want to be a biologist? Because is that what you ended up doing when you finished college? Yeah. So that, it's kind of a funny story there. Um, I, so I, I came out of high school with two paths that were in front of me and the first path that most people don't know about. Um, they used to call me the singing trout bum because I went to school for the first two years to study classical voice and opera. And no so, way. yeah, so, so yeah, the first two years that I was in school, uh, I was studying music and that's actually where I met my wife. She was a piano performance major. Um, but I, you know, the more I got into that world, the more I realized I, I was either going to be like traveling to cities and singing in opera houses like eight to 10 months of the year and not being able to pursue the other things that I loved so much, you know, being in the river, basically. Or I had to kind of quit the music world and, and pursue the, the fishing and things. So that's that's what I ended up doing. I I was battling in my mind, which, which path to take, uh, whether it was towards fisheries, biology or music when I got out of high school, but I had a bigger scholarship offer for 
for music. So that's kind of what grabbed me originally. And, you know, it ended up working out, but, uh, but kind of had a little bit of a serpentine path for a few years there. Do you still sing classical? I mean, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> that, that, that's the funny thing. Uh, you know, folks maybe who don't have that sort of background or experience, um, it is very much like any other physical pursuit. It's an it's it is a muscle and an instrument that requires dedication, training, hours and hours. You know, almost on a daily basis for those who are really at the top. And if you're not putting in those hours, then it goes away mighty quickly. So, can I still carry a tune and and sing? Sure. Can I do it anywhere in the realm of what I once did? Not even close. And that's why I don't try it publicly. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. What was your range? Were you baritone? I was a baritone. Yep. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's so interesting. It's funny. I, yeah. I found that, especially through the show, and I don't know if you know this, I also went to school for music and I found- I didn't that, know that. No, that's that's cool. Yeah. I did some classical training as well, but I'm primarily, I was passionate about jazz and still am about okay. jazz. But I found on the show that a lot of people who are musicians get into fishing and I can't help but wonder what the parallels are. I, I know for me, there's a certain amount of um, rhythm. Maybe it could be that. Mm -hmm. It could yeah. be the meditative side of things. Do you think that there's any, this is totally just on down, going down a rabbit hole, but do you think there's any parallels between music and fishing? I mean, I think there's a lot of connection there, or at least it triggers maybe similar sides of the brain. Um, I do think it's a both can be pretty contemplative and but also um, expressive in different ways. And the rhythm side, it, it's definitely there. If you can keep a, a tempo and a rhythm and a beat in music, you can often learn to fly cast well. Um, a lot of folks who maybe struggle with tempo and beat in their life <laughs> often tend to struggle with <laughs> a fly casting rhythm as well. I mean, you know, it's there's the old cliche scene of of uh, casting to a metronome and and a river runs through it. You know, and while I don't know that that's obviously the best way to to train, uh, ne necessarily, but but I I do think that there are a lot of people that that um, would would like both. I think it's hard for a lot of really serious musicians just because they end up having to do it a lot of times in metropolitan areas, so it doesn't often lead them maybe to the the river very easily but but there are a lot that end up going there in fact uh one of my teammates on uh fly fishing team usa um he also does a little bit of the guiding he's he's in school right now too but in the summers he guides and one of his clients is like a super famous dj that i don't even know about because i don't live in that musical world but but yeah there's uh, you know people from all walks of life end up taking up fishing Totally. Even just reading music, reading water. I have one tattoo that I am now actually trying to get removed. It's very old, but it's a music staff, you know, and you can see all uh -huh. the notes and everything. And it really does. It almost, it, it reminds me of getting to the river and being like, okay, there's a rock there. There's a log there. Is <laughs> just, it a bass or a treble clef though? That's it's, the real it's, a, it's a treble clef. Okay, it's, okay. <laughs> it's, it's got it's got to come off. And you want to hear, I can't believe I'm going to admit this. I'm I'm going to admit this. First of all, I was very young. I was like 18. I, he drew it on backwards and because it was in the uh, mirror, it took me years to figure uh, out that it was backwards. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, Actually, see, yeah. it, was, it was a tattoo that only you were supposed to see. That's uh, that's, that's the reality of it. Damn sure. And it is one that only I could see, but it's funny. I went to go get it removed the other day, look into it, but you've got to go like eight times. It's very expensive. And I just thought uh, yeah. it, it's hidden. We'll just leave it where it is. But um, I'm using it as a lesson to teach my daughter why not to get see? things put on their bodies. <laughs> it, it's a permanent decision whether you want it to be or not. Yep. Yep. Amen. Um, okay. So why biology then? That's, that's such a stark concept. Oh, yeah. It's, it is, totally it isn't, but it is, it is a totally yeah. different field in university. What sparked that? Uh, well, basically, um, I had, a the, the point sort of this, like, I don't know, aha moment, I guess. Um, I was the summer after high school, I lived in, uh, Montana and worked at a fly shop and well, basically, I worked about three days a week and fished the other four. Um, and I was driving across the upper Big Hole Valley and looking at all these tributary streams that were going in the Big Hole that had just flat out been destroyed, um, mainly by cattle grazing. And I was like, it was plain as can be there for the eye to see. And while there's lots of other issues going on, you know, the, the Big Hole is the site of the last sort of native population of of grayling in the lower 48 that's at least at all reliable um and there's been a lot of work that's been done actually since then that was 20 years ago now i they're having like a 20-year reunion in a few weeks <laughs> but i just thought about that but yeah that was 2003 um and uh i just felt it was such a shame that this fish was basically on the brink of extinction in the lower 48 and I, you know, I wanted to maybe do something about it in my career. So, uh, so yeah, I, I really got into it mainly be, from the conservation side of things, but also wanting to maybe help manage fisheries better. And, um, so that's what I ended up doing for at least a while. And what was your job exactly? Were you, were you on the river? Were you in an office? Both. Yeah. So the first job that I had out of grad school. I worked for a company in California. We did a whole lot of different stuff, um, but mainly working on salmon and steelhead recovery below the rim dams in the Central Valley and up through the Sacramento uh, system. Uh, lots of kind of evaluation before and after restoration projects had done, also overseeing and actually executing the restoration prog- uh, pro- uh, sites. Um, and then uh, one of the cool parts about that job is we got to do lots of genetics work and they would actually just make me fish all day to go get, get samples for genetics. Uh, cause in a lot of the waters that had really low dissolved ion contents, I could catch fish better than the electro fishing could. Um, so I got to go just catch fish for samples. <laughs> with what, with <laughs> what method, fun. with a fly, with bait? I have so yeah. many questions. Yeah, about with fly. That. Mm-hmm. So with a fly, yeah. how were you catching more fish than the electroshocking? Well, so electrofishing uh, relies on there being a, a fairly uh, a good concentration of ions in the water for the electricity to pass through. And some of those streams coming off the western side of the Sierra, they come out of just basically geology that gives no ions, no nutrients, no anything up to the water. They end up being extremely clear, kind of low in, in nutrients. And if unless you have... Uh, a, a backpack shocker team uh, essentially with a whole bunch of shockers and a lot of electricity going through the water 
you can't dial it up high enough that it'll it'll actually fish very well if there's not enough ions for it to pass through. So, um, you know, they would still electrofish in really small streams, but even there, like if there was a decent population and I could uh, fish for them, oftentimes I would at least keep pace with the electrofisher. And then they only had to send one technician with me instead of having a whole team there to, to you know, electrofish and net and do all that. And, and, and also, also sometimes like the permitting for endangered species, it was easier to get permits to be able to hook and line sample them and just catch and release uh, fish for them than it was to get permits to electrofish for them. So, you know, lots of reasons why we ended up doing that a lot. What does electrofishing look like? So you have some sort of a, I've actually never seen it done. Is there like a wand or something that you put in the yep. water and it obviously releases yep. a current and then yep. what, yep. what so, do the fish do? Um, so you have a, you know, the two, the anode and the cathode, and one is the rat, what they call the rat tail. That's basically just a, a wire that trails in the water behind you. And then you've got ones that are out front. And so it creates an electrical field between those two and kind of in a broadish area. Um, and as you get close to the fish, there's just enough electricity passing through the water that it will stun them. And it, if you do, if you're doing it right, if you have the settings, right, it's kind of cool. They they exhibit what's called taxis. And so the fish will actually be drawn toward the electrode that you have on the wand. Uh, and they turn upside down and kind of swim toward it. And uh, you can then catch them with a net. And then as soon as they're out of the electric field, you know, they all, they're, they're fine. Um, and uh, they kind of recover pretty quickly in a recovery bucket and you can, weigh and measure them take whatever samples you need you know maybe throw a pit tag in whatever it is that the the goals of the the day are and then uh you release them kind of out of the sampling area so they don't get shocked again if you're doing multiple passes because you're grounded you don't get shocked uh no you can definitely get shocked if you're wearing waders that have leaks in them or if you put your hand in the water so yeah you uh you want to wear like the dish washing gloves like the rubber dishwashing gloves and then uh make sure that you don't expose any skin to the water i mean it's not like it, it won't like hurt in a serious way but you'll it'll wake you up okay <laughs> it'll wake you up in a bit. <laughs> got it got it so then as far as your fishing goes were you using eggs streamers what did you end up finding was the most pro to be the most productive um fly i guess I mean, in those areas, um, I was just fishing small nymphs. A lot of times, yeah, um, you know, pretty typical stuff that you'd find on um, recommendations for Euro nymphs these days. You know, like a, your top ten or top six list of generic Euro nymphs and things like that. Pheasant tails, um, blow torches, various paradigons, things like that worked great. And a lot of times, I'd fish them on a euro rig but below a catastri or something like that and uh a lot of those western sierra fish were good at eating both <laughs> got it so at that time in your career were you starting to get to know the the angling community where do you start merging into the fly fishing industry oh you know i'd actually already been in it um a little bit uh i I got, I worked in a fly shop right after high school, that one in Montana. And then, um, I had worked in a kind of a, 
uh, a lot of people out west would know him a sportsman's warehouse which is like kind of a big box you know uh sports store that also has a fly fishing and a fishing section and i worked uh in that in high school um and then uh, so eventually after i dropped out of music uh my wife went we both dropped out of music she went back to school to get a culinary arts degree so while she was doing that i ended up uh, working at a fly shop uh which is where i spent well i don't I already knew Lance Egan, but um, that's where we worked together for the first time. And then there was also another guy named Ryan Barnes there, and they were both uh, members of Fly Fishing Team USA. And so that's kind of how I got exposed into that world. I'd already, um, I'd actually fished, I can't remember if we fished directly against each other or not, but the, back before that, um, there was a reality TV show called The Fly Fishing Masters that was on the outdoor life network for a couple of years and then outdoor life network became versus and then that became nbc sports yeah so there's just been this revolving door whatever that network actually is but back when it was oln there was a, a tv show called the fly fishing masters and it kind of got famous the first year because the ray jeff brothers um you know i don't know if they won the fishing end but they at least made it through the casting rounds the fishing and the whole premise of that show was they had a casting tournament that you would cast your way through and you had to make it into the top four or eight pairs. There was like, it was a, a couple's like a, a pairs competition and your casting scores between the pair got you into the fishing side of things. And so I did that, uh, like the Western regional version of it up in Oregon when I was 19. Um, and that's where I ended up. Uh, we, I cast it into the fishing round, um, with my partner and uh we fished i think against lance and ryan i can't remember now it was against somebody it's been so long who knows um but but yeah that was what kind of exposed me to the fishing competition side of things and i really enjoyed it um i was surprised how crazy nervous and overly anxious and excited i got but also it was such a wild emotional ride that I was like, this is something that I could see myself really enjoying if I maybe dialed it back a little bit. <laughs> um, and so then a couple of years later, when I started working at that fly shop with, with Lance and Ryan, then that's how I got introduced to the, the fly fishing team USA side of things. Cause they were on it. And then that next year they were hosting a competition there in Utah and I entered it. And uh, then finished just high enough at that competition that I got to go to the national championship and then finished just high enough at the national championship that I made the team that year. And then I've just kind of worked my way up ever since. How many people are on a team usually? Uh, well, so there's kind of two sets to the team. So there's a, a 15 person group that is like the larger body of fly fishing team usa uh, basically so that we can have three five person teams for like the national championship or other tournaments that we go to that maybe aren't the world championship but then from within those 15 people there's kind of like the top ranked guys that are uh there's six of them and they go to a, the world championship each year how yeah. do they cherry pick those six though yeah so um there's an entire team selection document that folks can go read if they want to see how it's all done it the uh so right now 
I'll just give you a quick overview of, of how we, we go. So we have a national championships every other year. And so in the, the year that there's a national championship, we have what are called regional tournaments. So they're just tournaments where basically people in a, a group of states that are fairly local, <laughs> they can have competitions in there and you get points from your finishes at those competitions and they rank you within the region. And then the next year you go to what's called inter-regionals and that's the year that we're in this year, which they're bigger competitions that we only have like five or six of them in a year. Um, and your rankings from the previous year in the regionals allow you to have your first come first serve choice by, by ranking of which inter-regionals you're going to go to. And so you get more points from your finishes at those inter-regionals. And then you add all those points together. And at the national championship the next year, uh, you see how you do there. And the uh, your, the points that you get from nationals plus the inter-regionals plus the regionals combine. And if you're in the top 15 points getters, then you're on that, that you know body of 15. That's the larger team. If you're in the top three point getters, then you automatically get a bid, a bid to the world championship for the next year or yeah, for the next years. And then the other three are voted upon by the body of the 15, as well as the captain. Um, so that's how that works. Oh, that's way more intricate than I thought. So are you still active? You're still yeah. doing this. All right. Yeah. Still yeah, prepping for the next world championship in September. What percent of it is the fish versus the skill because as you probably know it's a quite a it's not a contentious topic but it does get people debating as soon as you start talking about competing in fly fishing um everyone has oh it's plenty contentious (laughs) we we get we get tons of hate april we get tons of hate and um and i can understand it from an outside viewpoint uh in the end like we all we all really care about fishing Right. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding first off about fly fishing competitions and what they are and how they run. And, um, most people who actually go and attend one or maybe fish in one end up having a different perspective afterwards than, than they do going into it. Cause I, it's not, I, I, I think the, the idea that most people have about them is just frankly not very accurate. So is it luck or is it skill? Oh, um, well, I mean, there's certainly both. So the luck really kind of is, uh, it dials in on your draw. So your draw is uh, twofold, if you think about it. So, well, there's three parts of it. Um, <laughs> and this is going to maybe get a little complicated explaining how competitions work again. But at a world championship, for for example, like uh, in Slovakia this year, there'll be 30 teams so far that I've seen that have, have uh, registered for the championship. So there's 30 different countries that'll be there. And uh there's five different uh, well actually four rivers and one lake that'll will be fishing in this world championship. So um the of the 30 teams there's each of them has five people that will be fishing. 30 teams and 30 countries? Yeah, 30 countries. Yep. One that you're only allowed one team from each country. Uh and so there'll be five people and they get Put in a group. So like group A, for instance, you draw your group first. So those are the people from each country. There's one one person from each team that gets put in group A, another one in, you know, another set of people in group B, C, D, and E. 
And so if you're group A, you're going to go to river one first, then river two, river three, river four, and then maybe the lake last, right? And so you only have to fish directly against the people in that group. And that's how you're ranked within each session. So you get a four-hour session to fish river one, another four-hour session, then a session the next day to fish river two, another four-hour session the next day, so on, until you have five days. And so um, there's a couple elements of luck there. Maybe the group that you draw doesn't have as strong anglers in it as, you know, the next group does. Or maybe it has exceptionally, like there's six past world champions that might be in a group. Like that happens every year. There are some groups that just get totally stacked and it's all random, you know, computerized draws basically that do this. Then there could also be the beat that you draw. So if you're on a river, you know, you're allotted a specific beat and you stay on that beat for your four hours. And maybe you get a really good beat. Maybe you get a total crap beat. That is, you have no possible way of finishing well on. So there's that element of luck. And then thirdly, it can also be the person or people that preceded you on that beat. So um, I've had tournaments where, uh, you know, several top, top tier anglers fished before me on a beat. And by the time I got there, even though previously it had been a good beat, it's now a very bad beat because, yeah, (laughs) because like the dude who was there before me caught 57 fish. Right. And the, and the fish are just like, sorry, we're not eating anymore. We're going to give it a few days off before we really get on the feet again. So yeah, there's several elements that can be luck or bad luck there. Um, but you know, that's, that's fishing competition. And if you are going into it, just expecting complete parity, then don't go into it. Like there's no way to make it completely fair because you're, you're dealing with a natural environment by, by default, you don't get the same playing field, right? Like you're not all running on the same track or playing on the same basketball court you've got different beats that you're fishing and there's no other real way to do it. Um, so you've have to accept that sometimes you're going to win and sometimes you're going to lose in that draw, but either way you have to go fish your heart out and, and make the most of whatever, you know, you're given in that regard. Just deal with the cards that you're dealt. Yeah. And you know, I've seen plenty of people that they flash out in a year or two because, they get lucky, you know, one of their first times out, they do really well. They think, yeah, I've got this, you know, like I'm, I'm solid. I can compete with these guys. And then they have a a tournament or something where either they don't fish well, or maybe they have a bad beat or two or, you know, whatever. And they, they struggle and their results are not good. And then, and then they think, oh, well, this is totally unfair. I'm giving up basically. Um, and yes, it is unfair. I'm, here to say you are not going to have it fair so to speak uh each time you show up but that's where i think the people who you know if if you um look into elite sport at all um so much of what is talked about which has now become really cliche is you know trusting the process or being process uh, and goal oriented goal oriented and not results oriented you know and not results goals oriented and that is how you will have success in this game if you 
look at fly fishing competitions as an avenue for you to not only test yourself and measure yourself, but also find progress and and the process of of progression. There is no better way to do it. If you are dedicated to it, I am. I I can't even fathom how I would be fishing and how different I would be as an angler if I hadn't spent, well, it's been 17 years now that I've been competing for Team USA. Um, and this will be my, well, I can't remember if it's my 12th or my 13th world championship, but it's something like that. And I, I don't know what my life would be like without all that experience. Um, it's taught me to look at fishing and approaching waters, but also just enjoyment of fishing in a totally different way. Um, and not in ways that I think a lot of people would realize, uh, for me, the funny part is when I'm out fishing on my own, I don't count fish at all. Like I'm not an, I'm not a dude who's keeping track of fish. I don't really, you know, there's things I will keep track out of like, uh, you know, how, how many, like what, what relative percentage of fish that you hooked today, did you actually land and things like that? Because those are metrics that I can work on and, and get better at. Um, but I don't care about whether I caught more fish or less fish than somebody else I was fishing with that day. What I end up caring about is like, did I execute X, Y, Z, you know, tactic, cast, presentation, drift? Did I, how quickly did I figure out? how to target this spot with the fewest changes possible, the best that I could like those, those are the process oriented goals that I look at from a day of fishing that I'm always trying to increase my efficiency and my ability that is totally par- apart from like, Oh, I caught so many more fish today than I did yesterday or so many more fish than you or, or whatever. Like, I don't care about that. Um, it's a totally different way of viewing things. And I've, I've learned to appreciate fish that are eight inches just as much as I do that 20 something inch fish. That's spectacular. Um, because I still carry my deep love of, of fish, you know, um, just because I'm not a biologist anymore, doesn't mean I don't still have that deep love. And, um, I think that it's, you know, one of the misconceptions I think is that, anglers just that who are competitive anglers just want to go rack them stock them you know rip lips and catch as many as possible uh, and really in competition that's the way we have to measure it because there's really no other metric to to be able to gauge success for one angler versus another but at the same time um the competitive anglers whom i've met are they're they're uh they're not out there just for like blood sport you know um they're very much just as into the actual being a fly angler side of things as they are how many fish they caught that day um they just happen to be really good at it (laughs) and really dedicated to getting better at it and it's the one of the best ways they've found to to do that and in addition you just form incredible you know like any other sport you form incredible friendship and there's camaraderie that you really can't get anywhere else. I've got friends from all over Europe and New Zealand and Australia and, you know, all over the world that I've been to fish with a lot of them and they have open invitations to come fish with me. And we're sort of like 
brothers of the angle from all across the world. So, um, Lance, is he, I actually don't know Lance. I obviously know of Lance. Is he the same age as you? No, he's, uh, he's rounding in on 45 now, somewhere around there. So he's about six, seven years older than I am. When you think of the OG North American Czech slash Euro, just general nympher, who who do you think of? Oh, man. So at, back at the time when I first got into it, um, at least, and, and, you know, I'll, I get told this every day how so-and-so was doing this, you know, in the eighties and the long 70s before and you, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yes. So, I think it's so the same don't, thing. Don't start that argument with me. I don't care. Um, but the, the people who were on the team when I first was there, the, the, the ones who really kind of instigated a lot of this, I think of, Lance, um, Ryan Barnes was there for a few years, uh, Pete Erickson, um, Norm McTima, uh, Lauren Williams, Josh Stevens, you know, guys from those first few years that I was involved, Brett Bishop, um, who he's, he actually won the world masters championship last year, the 50 and over. Um, so those are the guys that I think of probably the most that that I fished with early on um, that were sort of pioneers in bringing those styles to to uh, America. But I would say that Lance is probably responsible for much of the early innovation here, or at least like the leading charge of truly de- delving into what the Europeans were doing beyond what was being done in the 80s. Because... Um, Originally, when we first started, uh, the team was being coached by Vladi, and I'm going to butcher his last name, but his last name is like Trezbunia. That's pretty good. good. Yep. Really well, well well-known Polish angler. He won the championship, uh, world championship back in, I don't know exactly which 80 something it was, but I think it was around 87. He's got a really interesting story for anybody who wants to go out there and delve into it. I'm not going to get into it now, but he is pretty much almost like the father of Polish nymphing, which then became Czech nymphing kind of in the nineties as the Czechs picked it up. Um, but the thing is by the time that all of Redwords was writing about Czech nymphing in like 2003 and a lot of the UK magazines, the Spanish and the French and even the Czechs at that time were starting to make massive leaps forward in leader design and thinking about, uh, much longer, thinner, lighter leaders that have drastic effects on your presentation and how much weight you actually have to fish to be able to nip fish. But meanwhile, in like 2005 and six, we're still being coached by Vladi, who, you know, in 87 was at the leading edge of things. But by 2005 or six, he was still kind of fishing like he was in 87. And, and it was kind of behind what had recently been developed and so we were still getting our butts kicked frankly um and uh but i remember lance came home from the championship i hadn't gone to a world championship yet um i was on the team at that point that the fly fishing team usa but i didn't make my first world championship team until 2009 when it was in scotland um but lance 
went, I want to say his first one was in 2006 in Portugal. And then the next year was in uh, Finland. And he brought home this book called Czech Nymph and Other Related Fly Fishing Methods written by a guy named Carol Kravanek, who was a, a former captain of the Czech fly fishing team. And um, it was kind of, I mean, it, you know, it's an English translation, so I don't really know <laughs> what the original book was truly about because Carol translated it himself, I think, and he did a pretty darn good job, but, I, you know, who knows how much was lost in translation. But uh, the funny thing is the whole book, it's like there's tons of fly patterns and sort of the history of the development of Czech nymphing in, in the Czech Republic and all these big names that um, in those early days were just famous Czech fly guy, uh, fly fishers who'd done really well at the world championships. But meanwhile, like guys like Pascal Cognard from the French team are now winning three world championships almost in a row, I think at one point. And the Czechs are wondering what on earth are these guys doing? And so there's stories of them like hiding in the grass while they're watching the French and the, and the Spanish dudes <laughs> fishing and trying to figure out what their leaders are like and how they're going about fishing. And there's, all these interesting things that that you know went on and this is also like all of the updates and technology both in leader materials and rods and everything it really hasn't occurred yet because there hasn't been much in the line of dedicated competition tackle that's even come along um so these guys are starting with typical everyday rods and and lines and leaders that anybody could use and just having to adapt it. Um, but the French and the, the Spanish are going much longer and lighter. And there's three pages. If I remember right, I'd have to go back and look at the actual book, but three pages in that book of these, what Carol Kravanek was calling French leaders. And these leaders were like drastically different than any of the other leader formulas that were in the book, which the Czech leaders in general and the, the Polish leaders too, that we, I had originally been taught. They're very short. A lot of times they still had fly line out their rod tip and they were kind of just watching the this intentional sag of, of that line and leader out their rod tip. And when it would, that sag would, you know, straighten out, then that was their cue for strike detection. But the problem is with really short, heavy leaders and fly line out their rod tip and everything, you're having to fish tons of weight to be able to get down um, in a lot of water and some water just, you couldn't do it because you'd have to fish so much weight to overcome that sag of the mass of your line and leader that there was a lot to compensate for. So the French were going so much longer and thinner and reducing all that sag that they started to be able to fish really quite small, lightly weighted flies and do things with them that nobody else was doing and, and sight fish with them and, you know, all sorts of different things, pushing the envelope. And uh, so Lance picked up those formulas of those leaders out of that book and played with him over a summer and he gave me a call like a couple months into it i mean we'd been fishing together and working together still so but he was like doing this in the background like trying to figure this out you know before he talked to anybody else about it um and one day i don't i can't even remember if it was at work or if it was like a text conversation on another day but he's like okay dude we we you got to come see this i think it's going to blow your mind um so that's when we went and did did what i call the h creek experiment which i talk about in our first nymphing film modern nymphing and we sort of did this quasi experiment where we uh we had lance and myself and then our friend 
uh, Kurt Finlayson, who was on Team USA for a couple of years. And we went to this stream that has tons of fish in it. One of those Utah streams that you talked about, small streams, really high density of, of fish in this specific one. Um, kind of this one's known more for like uh, high density of smaller fish, kind of the the prime location to really be able to te- test the efficacy of a technique, you know. And uh, we would have one person fish a dry fly, then the next person fish a dry dropper. You know, the, the two techniques that by far are the most dominant for people to fish on that that stream. And then one of us would come back up through with the French leader with a French nymphing rig, and then almost every single time, at least in that instance the first two people would catch fish, but then the third guy would come through even after the run had already been fished and he'd catch more with the French nymph rig than the two people before him. And it was just kind of this epiphany of, Oh my gosh, we've been doing this all wrong. You know, uh, <laughs> at least with the actual nymphing side of things. So, um, and that was, that changed a lot, you know, right over overnight. Like I, I happened to be, I, uh, that's right. That summer I was guiding. Um, and had you I left had, like, being a biologist at this point? No, this is way before I got into any of that. So this okay. is back still when I'm, this is like 2007. Right. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah. So I didn't, I, I didn't even go back to school to be a biologist in 2000 or uh, 2008. That's when I back, went back to start my undergrad. Um, and I didn't, I, you know, I graduated with my undergrad in 2011 went straight into grad school and got my master's degree in 2014. So I didn't end up being a biologist until 2014. So this is still long before that. Um, I was guiding for a couple summers there and then I was working at the fly shop the rest of the year with Lance. Gotcha. And so I had like a 30 day window in between the end of kind of when guide season was slowing down and the national championship. And when I started back up work at the fly shop with Lance. So I fished like 28 days out of 30 to try and, really dial in this technique and figure it out before the national championship that fall. And the funny thing is apparently I didn't figure it out very well because, uh, we got there and we were in a place that tends to have a little bit of wind and it, I just totally abandoned it and went straight back to dry dropper fishing. Um, cause I hadn't figured out how to compensate yet, but, but, uh, it was this, you know, it's one of those kind of defining summers, I guess, of learning that, has propelled so much forward for, for me. And, and I just love those. I love these breakthroughs that happen that, you know, they're getting harder and harder to find now as like, we kind of have reached up against the envelope of really what's possible um, with our leader designs and everything. But at, at the same time, every year I still have like, I don't know, one, two, three things that happen at a, usually at a competition either from teammates or another competitor that I talk to afterward that I'm like, Oh my gosh, why didn't I think of that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that was, that's a duh, you know, like <laughs> that's all part of the fun with the French. Yeah, rig, absolutely. Was the French rig more productive than the dry dropper because it obviously could penetrate the water column faster because it was thinner, I assume. Um, or was it because the fish couldn't see the leader? Is it because you're fishing off the bottom? What are the, what are the, te- what's the technique so in, and what's that in this nerdy in stuff this about specific this? case, in this specific case, uh, two, two things. Um, the first one is, you know, the dry dropper was set to a certain depth, 
you know, and as the depth changed throughout the run, you know, there's times when that's going to be the correct depth. And then there's other times where it might be too long or too short and you're just not in a close enough proximity to the fish to get them to eat. So with the the French leader and the nymphing rig, you know, it's pretty versatile in the way you can fish it without too many changes. You can fish shallow, you can fish deep, you can do all sorts of different things with it. Uh, fish, you know, slow sink rate, high sink rate, uh, cider off the water, cider floating on the water, lots of things you can do with it. And so I think it just was easier to get it to fit the specific water at each place that you cast uh, so that you could get your fish, your flies within proximity to the, uh, the fish with a good drift all the time, or at least as much of the time as possible. The fish didn't have to come up for anything like the dry fly, you know, it didn't have to come all the way through the calm, didn't even have to come mid calm for that dry dropper. Um, you could bring the fly to them wherever they were at, I think is really what boiled down to it. Plus there was in this specific instance where there were so many small fish around. Um, this is also before really the development of really good cider material, like really bright cider materials that you can see these days. We were like, we were taking pink fluorocarbon from saltwater rigs and, you know, old strand yellow and all sorts of different stuff to make our own ciders or amnesia, whatever. Um, and while they worked, like they weren't as visible as a lot of things that are just pre-made for it these days. Uh, but, um, we could also do what's called the French roll. And, and this is, it was kind of interesting. It's not something that's really talked about even these days because ciders are so good, but you, the French roll is essentially you cast it up into a spot or a pocket or whatever you count to three and you set the hook because the fish are so quick at taking and rejecting or spitting out the fly that even with a, a properly presented rig, um, the, the contact is such that you're still missing a, who knows what proportion of takes, but a lot of them. And as you grid it off this piece of water, you cast, you count to three, basically long enough that your flies were approaching the depth of the water they were in and still had a, a, a foot or two to drift through that water long enough for a fish to take. Then you'd set the hook into a cast and you'd go again. And so it's just this repetitive you know, probing process. And there were so many fish that were taking as those flies were drifting, but it wasn't showing up either on the dry, you know, with the dry dropper rig or even on the cider that it was just adding extra fish that way through, uh, basically guessing and checking. How do you make sure that you're not snagging them? Uh, you don't snag them. Um, for, for one thing, they're really small, agile fish that we were, we were catching. And it's not like they were packed together in a pod, like a hatcher or anything like that. They're moving to the fly still. So they're coming and they're making a decision to come eat it. Um, and a lot of times you'd still see a take on the water and you'd set the hook maybe even before you got to the three. But the the reality was it was shallow enough water type um, and the, the current was moving at a speed that if you counted much more than to three, you were probably going to tick bottom not that long after that anyway. So it was sort of a preemptive uh, move to avoid ticking bottom, but also check and see if there happened to be a fish that had taken without it showing on your cider yet. And and like I say, these days, that's not really practiced all that much just because 
our leaders have come so far and our actual methodology of drift and recognizing strikes and all of that has also come a long way. So we don't really have to do that anymore, but it was one of the ways that this all started out mainly because back when the French were first figuring this out, they didn't even have cover colored lines at all. So they were fishing pocket water a lot of times just with like a greased section of their leader that they would cast, let that float count to three and set the hook. Or if they happened to see the, the grease leader, you know, jump on the water, they knew they had to take, but. And why not use an indicator? I've got, I've got questions because I just last night got back from a trout fishing trip down in the snowy mountains on mm-hmm. a river that is I- ideal for this sort of fishing. And I was doing a lot of nymphing, which I'm not great at, but I just remember thinking that I had watched um, a class or a video on it before I'd gone fishing because we were even debating, you know, do you use a tapered leader? Do you use a straight leader? Do you use an indicator? Do you not use an indicator? Do you go on the bottom? Do you not go on the bottom? I've just got all these questions. So let's start with the um, yeah indicator. Could you use an indicator and still be able to be as effective as you would be without it? So this all comes down to water type there i look at you know you can cross over a dry dropper with an indicator a lot because like as as george says it's still oh and i forgot to mention george when you were asking about the originals (laughs) i can't believe that Uh, (laughs) here we are you know one of the reasons we got connected was because of george and i forgot (laughs) to mention george george i'm sorry you were one of the og nymphers and og fly fishers on team usa please forgive my grand omission there (laughs) Um, anyway, so, you know, George is one of the first people I think who coined it as a suspension device. Um, and you know, that's because not only is an indicator or a dry fly showing you your indication of a take, but it's also basically keeping your fly at a certain depth. And so it's suspending it at that depth, right? So, um, indicators and dry droppers, they tend to work really well in situations where the currents are fairly non-complicated. So you don't have really sharp knife edge seams where if you put your indicator on one side of that and your flies land on the other, they're going to fight each other right away. Um, because That's one's going faster, one's going slower, right? Yeah, yes. So indicators work really well in situations where you have sort of uniform currents. I mean, not like 100%, but fairly uniform, not obvious breaks from boulders, or, you know, a run that's got a really soft edge and a really fast center, um, something like that. Those are places where indicators and dry droppers tend not to do as well. Dry dropper, that's another story on a year on leader because you can you can fish a really short dropper with the dry fly in complicated pockets and still do fairly well. For one thing, because the fish tend to like the dry fly so much if the temperatures are right. That's actually becomes the focus a lot of times with the dry dropper in that water. It's more the dry fly and the heats that you get on that than it is on the dropper. But um, in, you know, placid sort of uniform currents, uh, a deep pool that's fairly non-complicated, a glide, something like that, then indicators and dry droppers work great for that. Whether you fish, regardless of the leader that you fish them on, you know, I, I still fish them a lot on quote unquote, Euro nymphing leaders. So really long, fine leaders, because there's a lot of benefits to that. Um, instead of having, you know, a really heavy weight forward line with a tapered leader that makes a lot of ruckus and that you're constantly having to mend and rip off the water, you know, to, to continue your drift. But uh, there are times and places where indicators or dry droppers are 
bar none, the best way to fish. Um, they, they just target that water the best. And in those water types, I will fish that way. But then there's water that has much more complicated currents where uh, a straight Euro nymphing approach where you've got weighted flies that connect you directly to your leader and your cider is off the water. So you don't have anything but thin tippet that's penetrating the water column. And so you are in control of the drift at that point. The drift isn't in control of you. You know, that the leader isn't in control of the drift. The indicator isn't in control of the drift. You are. And you can set the speed those flies go. You can dictate their drift. And as long as you're doing it right, you can match the the deadness of their drift better than with any other method. And that's really why it's so, so deadly. Um, because you are getting better drifts, but also recognizing takes much quicker and much more reliably than you would if you fished an indicator in the same water type. Right. Yeah. Cause I kept missing fish. Are you then only focusing on upstream and say to a 90 or are you also getting hits down below you or at that point, have you, have you all, back all over the place? Yeah. Okay. No, uh, I mean, you can think of it almost as a 180 degree method, maybe okay. more like 150, I guess, because you're never going to really fish directly below you. But you can fish directly upstream of you, you know, in any sort of fan cast back and forth. That's usually more difficult for people to master because it takes, it requires longer casts and more ability to control your slack. And that seems to be, I think, one of the hardest challenges for people is smoothly. Uh, stripping slack when you're you're nymphing because so many people are used to an indicator where they can have that there's built-in slack in between them and the indicator and so if they if they bump their rod and the rod tip wickles or they make a strip that's not very smooth or something there's still slack in between them and the indicator and the indicator doesn't move but when you're euro nymphing you're tight to that cider which is now your indicator and if you make a strip that's not very smooth or you bounce the rod or you you know, whatever, then that cider moves. And guess what? If the cider's moving, then your flies are moving. And so being able to make a cast, have your cider stay completely steady, drift exactly at the speed of where your flies are at, not the surface of the current, you know, but where your flies are at, and then managing your slack smoothly so that you're not making any um, undue movements to those flies through your rod. That's a challenging thing for a lot of folks. And so it's easier to do when you're fishing kind of up and across or like the standard Euro nymphing window, I guess, you know, mainly fishing across this, the river, making a little bit of an upstream cast and then kind of the center of your drift as it's directly perpendicular to you. That's where most people catch their fish. And then they might get a few as it swings up toward the end. But oftentimes the, the directly upstream approach can be every bit as deadly, if not more deadly, if nothing else, because you're staying out of the fish's window of you and you're not spooking as many, Yeah, uh, but it's, it's just harder to master. Got it. And then what was I doing? I was after my drift, I, I didn't have a lot of back casting. So I was just kind of water loading. I was just loading it back up and mm -hmm. then, yeah. And then I, I was pretty drag free. And then when it got to in front of me, I would do kind of a little mend to reposition. Um, but I was missing so many fish, Devin, like it, it was really eye opening, and I'm not entirely sure mm -hmm. if it's because the, I know for a fact that the leader was too long at some point. And I mean, that's where the fish were, but it, I'm so short that I would have to stand up on the bank to be able to set and actually feel anything. 
Um, so then when I, when I was able to shorten my leader, I was able to get more fish. Do you have any thoughts there? I mean, you're looking at me cause I'm sure you're thinking technically I was doing something wrong. What could I have been doing? Oh, wrong I, there? I'd have to, I'd have to see the situation. <laughs> I'd have to see your rigging. You know, there's so many pieces of the tackle and rigging and gear puzzle. I will say this, your height shouldn't have to come into it. I know plenty of people in this game who are five feet tall and plenty of others who are six and a half feet tall or taller, and they can each be equally as effective. Um, so height won't matter as long as you're managing your slack ride. Oh, so oh, my, sting. that's exactly what yeah, it was too. Yeah. My, my personal guess is that you just had too much slack on the water that you had to remove once you went to set the hook, which is part of why your nymphing ends up being so effective. If you come from a straight indicator method where you're having to manage all that slack, well, that slack has to be removed before you set the hook. But if you don't really have any slack, if you have a relatively direct connection, you know, a tight line, as lots of folks like to refer to it, um, then if you just flick the wrist literally that much, you know, I don't know if people aren't going to see this on camera, but I'm just yeah, no, it's all, it'll go on YouTube. Wrist. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So if it's on YouTube, if you just flick the wrist that much, <clears throat> if you think about it, if you've got a 10 or 10 and a half or an 11 foot rod, you might flick it this much down there, but that 10 or a half or 11 foot rod, draw that angle out and it moves a long ways. And if you've already got pretty much little to no slack to begin with, that's plenty far to penetrate the hook. And you're, and it's also very quick. These muscles in your wrist and your forearm are very quick to react um, much quicker than your shoulder muscles are, but they also are not nearly as strong. So when you set the hook, and it stops because you've penetrated on the fish, then the rod doesn't keep going. So you also can fish finer tippet without constantly breaking off if you just learn to set with just the wrist. But you can't do that when you're indicator fishing because your wrist can't move the rod far enough to remove all that slack. So right. you kind of have to learn to train your hook set based on the method you're fishing and the amount of slack that ends up being part of that method. I th I think I should have just taken the indicator off to be honest. It was just a piece of of yarn and mm -hmm. um and I could feel in my gut that it needed to come off, but I was so afraid that I wouldn't be able to tell when a fish had taken. Well, that's why you end up building a cider into it. Got so it. Get some colored monofilament that now becomes your indicator and you can track it the same way, but you can stay connected to it. So what about tapered it, yeah. leader versus straight through? It's funny because a, a really nice guy was passing by and he was new to fly fishing and he happened to stumble upon myself, my husband and our good friend, Josh. And now he's got three different people telling him what to do. I, I knew to take a step back because this is not my strength. And listening to Josh and Charles debate about whether to have straight leader versus tapered leader was very interesting. What are your thoughts? Well, okay. So if you're, if you're indicator nymphing, having some sort of taper to be able to make the mend easily is probably beneficial. But what if um, it went straight fly line, straight to your yarn, and then like a 10 foot leader with a tongue so you should, bomb. You should never go straight to your yarn from your fly line. I agree. Okay. I'm starting to feel some confidence coming back. Continue. Okay. So, <laughs> so here, here, here's the reason why on that. If you are indicator fishing and you have the indicator connected to your fly line, Every time you move your fly line and mend it, your indicator is going to move. If you move your indicator, you are moving your flies. 
you have now jumped your flies however far you move that indicator with each mend. If you have distance in between that fly line and that indicator, you can make a rolling mend, toss that line up or downstream of that indicator without moving the indicator. And then you have that much slack between the tip of your line and your indicator that can reposition itself before the fly line catches back up and ends up pulling on that indicator again. So uh, if I'm actually going to indicator fish, let's just say pre-comp fishing, you know, back when I was, because I, I came from indicator fishing tailwaters, you know, before I, get, I ever got into competition fishing and I did it a lot and I got good at it. Um, I never had my indicator any closer than uh, to my fly line tip than three feet. I was just going to say I would three often, feet. Yeah, I would often have five or six because then that gives me more distance in between that I can mend on the water without affecting the the movement of the indicator, essentially. So not two inches but, from the fly line tip. No, two inches from the fly line. And I see that all the time. And I just kind of smile and be like, good on you. I mean, I'm happy to advise if you want, but that but that's a really common mistake. Yeah, okay. That it, makes me I, feel and, and, so yeah, much better. I see it right all now. the time. <laughs> okay, good. I see it all the time. Uh and it's if you are indicator fishing, don't do that. Like there's nothing wrong with indicator fishing, but if you're gonna indicator fish, set it up so you're setting yourself up for success. And Beauty. that's one way to not not set yourself up for success, I would say. So if we're not indicator fishing, level line. Yeah. So um, I mean, there's all sorts of leader formulas out there that that, uh, you know, I've talked about either on my YouTube channel or in all three of our modern nymphing series films. Uh, we get lots of formulas there. It depends upon your personal casting level and how used to things you are. Because like these days, I'm not fishing tapered in any in, in my Euro nymph leaders for the most part. They're all level. And if it's a pure nymph rig, a lot of times they're really fine. Like, four five six x is my butt section you know the butt something section? like that oh my gosh yeah. so that going would be the butt to, section going down to why i guess it it's just level it's so it's just that it's level to like a tippet ring or just a tippet knot to my tippet and then my tippet right. might be six or seven x um or five x if i'm really fishing big water a big trout or something but but six or seven x typically and the leader would be one to two sizes bigger and that's the colored portion that ends up being your Euronymphing leader. So that's what I refer to as a microliter. But if you're just starting out Euronymphing, you're going to struggle with a microliter. You got to learn to cast some, some tapered versions that have a little bit more energy transfer first before you want to step off that cliff and jump straight into the pool with the microliter alligator, you know, uh, you, you got to be able to learn to fight back with, uh, with the alligator and, and, and control that alligator <laughs> through your casting stroke, or else you're going to get lots of tangles, um, and not be accurate because they're, they're twin devils, right? Uh, if you can't put your flies where you want them to go, it doesn't matter what leader you have. It does, you no good. And if you're getting tangled all the time and you're frustrated about having to re-rig it, it also doesn't matter. So regardless of the properties of performance of said leader if you can't learn to cast it then it doesn't do you any good so start with something on the, like the the first formulas that we talked about in modern nymphing it would be a tapered leader like the whole leader is still going to be 20 ish to 22 feet um but you know the first fifth uh 13 of that is probably going to be like 
somewhere between 12 to 20 pound maxima uh, chameleon because it's really stiff. And so even if it's relatively thin, it still transfers energy well. And then you can add a like an 18 inch section of, um, or like a, 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 I don't know, two to three foot section if you want of like 12 pound amnesia. And then an 18 inch section of actual cider material, which is, you know, dedicated dyed inner, inner, uh, bicolor or something like that. And then you have your tippet ring and your tippet. Um, but that cider is either going to be greased and floated or held off the water and you'll track it through the drift. But the thing about that leader, it does help you cast easier, uh, because it has some stiffness and some energy transfer. So you can make some fairly traditional casts with it without having as many tangling problems and it'll actually direct your flies where to go. Um, but it's got a lot more mass than straight four X or five X out your rod tip does. So it sags and then you have to compensate for that mass and that sag by fishing heavier flies. So you can fish lighter and lighter flies with smaller and smaller leaders and fish them further away as well. So if you want to fish, you know, across a, a, a fairly large river or you know maybe you want to touch the bank on the on a small stream but you don't want to wait any closer so you don't spook fish well if you have a thicker euro nymphing leader you might not quite be able to get there at least not with without kneeling and and approaching you know from a low profile um but if you have a super thin micro leader then you might be able to fish that far away or you might be able to do it with a size 20 and a two millimeter or 2.3 millimeter bead instead of a size 14 and a 3.3 millimeter bead that the fish aren't as willing to eat you know so that type of stuff plays into it a lot it's very technical do you sell a lot of these things or leaders on your on your website at technical mm-hmm. Fly yeah we have all sorts of different you know pre-made leaders but also all the materials you could ever want to tie them as well and that that's the thing like euro nymph euro leaders are not hard to tie if you can tie a couple blood knots uh or whatever your preferred you know tippet knot is if you can literally tie like two of them you can make a yearly (laughs) 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 or or if you can peel it off the spool and tie a tippet ring on the end congratulations you just made a euro nymphing leader (laughs) like it's not hard you can make it however you want um for the properties that you're after but you have to kind of fit it to wherever your casting ability is at to begin with and then work on getting thinner and thinner and thinner a lot of guys i know they started out with those leaders we talked about in the first video because specifically those are designed for anybody to really be able to cast regardless of where they're coming from but a lot of people don't move past it because they just never form the casting ability to do it but for those who dedicate themselves to it uh, they can get down to whatever leader you want and still be extremely accurate got it so what about the rings when did you guys start using those Oh, so that's actually a good topic. Um, I mean, I, I, I knew about tippet rings even before I started competing. They, they, they probably started being somewhat, um, available, I would say in the early to mid two thousands, but they didn't really gain popularity for a while. And they were actually illegal in competition for a long time. Well, I just want to give you some insight. Once upon a time when I was really young, I was the rep for Oh my God, I've just drawn a blank on the real brand. It's a German brand of real Vossler reels. Vossler? 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Fabiche leaders. And I remember getting all these leaders and there were tippet rings in them. And I thought, oh, these Germans. Were they, were they, they like furled, furled leaders yeah. or something? Or, yeah. 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 I mean, I think that's maybe even where it kind of all originated because a lot of the people who were fishing furled leaders, they needed that easy connection at the end to be able to join it to monofilament for their tippet. And I, and I yeah. remember thinking that they were so far behind. And obviously, as I matured and became more experienced, I understood that they were actually just way ahead of a lot of us here. But in North America, how did that all come to be? Yeah, I mean, we uh, folks started using them early on. The funny part was that, that uh, we couldn't use them in competition until oh. probably, I don't remember when they changed the rule. It was probably about 10 years ago somewhere in there for the longest time we weren't allowed to fish tippet rings and so we'd have to b- build in like an extra piece of tapered line or you know in there to to form the junction better because going from straight cider to especially in like the older thicker leaders going from that to 6x is not going to happen you're like good luck yeah and they also had a funny rule where they still have it where you can't have a loop in your leader that's further than 10 centimeters from your fly line so like a loop to loop connection, so to right. speak, you can't do that unless you have it like this close to your fly line. Um, don't ask me why. Another really silly Phipps moose rule, which I don't want to go down that rabbit hole because there's plenty of them. But really what ended up happening was the the competitors lobbied the Phipps moose, which they're the ones who are, they're like the IOC of, of the competitive fly fishing, essentially. Um they lobbied them for so long that eventually they kind of capitulated and allowed tippet rings. And so now we can fish tippet rings. Um, but that's only, like I say, it's probably only been for the last 10 years. So uh, a lot of us were using them outside of competition before that, but we couldn't actually use them in competition. So we would end up training without them for the last little bit to get used to not using them again. But the reality is that half the time they were probably getting used anyway. So I think it was dumb not to allow them. <laughs> <laughs> is there any other technical advantage to them? Uh, you know, i.e. is there weight? I know in our chronometing masterclass, Brian Chan was talking about it being an attractor or even looking like an air bubble. Is there any um, technical advantage there? I mean, all of those things could be the case. I actually don't, I, I've, I've started not using them a lot to get back to having as little mass in my leader as possible because if you actually start fishing a micro leader um, and you see that out there and you're holding it off the water, you'll see this tiny little hinge right at the point where the tippet ring is. And it's yeah. because there's a point of weight there where there's just enough metal that it forms that slight bit of sag. And the whole point of fishing the micro is to get rid of sag altogether, at least as much as you can. Um, and so by having a tippet ring there, it's hard to do. And if, if I do fish a tippet ring, I make them micro micro. Like I'll build them. I'll just break off dry fly hooks, the eyes of dry fly hooks. And that'll be my tippet ring. Um, because they're so much smaller and finer and you end up having less sag that way. Got it. Got it. So back to your time. You know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> how long has it been now that we no, were supposed to be coming back to that? <laughs> I told okay, so, you, <laughs> I, I'm nothing but a train that's running off the tracks. I'm sorry. That's, that's great. I love it. It keeps it interesting. So you, all right, so you do all of this amazing stuff. Then you do your biology. What was the next step? When you decided that you were going to leave your career or have a career change or pivot, 
Okay. What'd that look like? So, yeah. So in 2015, um, I was fortunate enough to win a medal at the world championships that year. Uh, so I won the bronze medal individually. And then we got our first team medal that year as well. We got a silver that year. Um, and then we ended up getting another bronze as a team the next year. And that's also when Lance won his bronze medal was the next year. But so we were kind of riding a little bit of momentum at that point. And we've still, you know, done well since, but just haven't quite gotten back on the podium um, at, at the world championships. But uh, I came off of that thinking two things. Number one, I have a slight bit of um, notoriety from this that maybe I can ride uh, the wave or capitalize on. But also, like, at that point, there was so there were so few outlets for buying the types of materials and rods and hooks and beads, you know, all the stuff that we were using in competition, there was, it was very hard to get in the United States. There were one or two other sites selling it at that point and they really hadn't pushed it. It was just kind of, they were either run poorly and they were run by folks who like you'd place an order and you might actually get it shipped like two weeks later or never, or, or they were like a segment within this much larger sort of mainstream fly shop. And so there weren't a lot of people focusing on it. And I kind of got sick of it because I was essentially having to join in with my teammates and we'd put together a big order to, to import from some, you know, European fly shop or European company. And I was like, there's a, there's a bit of a niche in the market here that if nothing else, I want to be able to get the stuff that I want to fish without having as big of a hassle. So I first started it mainly to make a fly shop that could supply the stuff I was using. Um, and so I started a little fly shop. My, my friend Glade Gunther, uh, started it with me. He gave me some seed money to, to kind of get some initial inventory and build the site. And, um, so for the first year, it was really small. It was literally just run out of my garage and our house in Oregon. And my wife was filling the orders, what few we were getting. And uh, I was just working on it at night when I came home. And, you know, that was really it. And then uh, the next year or the end of that year, I, I talked to um, Lance and to Gilbert Rowley, which a lot of people know Gilbert from all of his films and the film tours and things like that. Well, Gilbert and I actually were classmates uh, in Fisher's biology back when we were doing our undergrad. And I taught Gilbert how to Euronymph um, back then. So he knew about it and he's a good angler, but he's also an incredible filmmaker. And I thought there's also a hole for really good instruction on this technique in, in video form. There were a couple of videos that were out before that, but I didn't feel like they either were done very well or at least taught the latest methods with that you know people could really benefit from so um i talked to gilbert asked him if he maybe wanted to shoot an instructional uh, instructional film together and you know in the process we were like yeah we should get lance on board let's see if he wants to do it too so sure enough that um next oh man when did we shoot it it would have been late 2016 i think um because I started the shop like December 2015, like right before Christmas. And I think we actually started rolling in January 2016. Then we shot the film that next fall, 
um, and had it ready to sell the next spring in February in 2017. And so we released that film. It's called Modern Nymphing European Inspired Techniques. And that was our first instructional film. And pretty much overnight, the site went from being this podunk little thing that I was filling a couple orders with my wife, you know, like a, a few nights a week type of thing to, um, I don't know, there was like six or seven times the traffic in a number of uh, days to a week. And all of a sudden, not only did uh, did we just have our second kid, uh, my daughter was born right at that same time, but also I now essentially had two full-time jobs. And so I was like, I was completely frazzled. I was working, you know, two full-time jobs, basically like 70 plus 80 hours a week. And that was not sustainable. So we kind of had to decide what to do. I, I was already kind of looking for different biologist positions at that point. Cause I had, um, the role that I was in at that job was for a specific project. And I had caught the project up from like five years of back reporting and kind of saved them from having the project taken away from them. And so then once I caught up though, there wasn't like a whole lot extra for me to do. And I was starting to get bored, which is why I had time to start the shop. Um, and so they wouldn't expand the project. And so I was kind of like, well, there's not a whole lot of upward mobility for me here. And it right at the same time, the shop took off and it kind of ended up, ended up, being a no-brainer you know and i quit my day job as a biologist and took on the shop full-time at tactical fly fisher so where you've since stayed yep yep are, are you guiding in, you're in guiding though as well right do you still guide no no i guided for a couple of seasons after that kind of when the shop was still relatively small and you know i, I needed to fill some holes in the uh the family budget but i got out of guiding in 2019 that is impressive. So 38, you've got a long road ahead of you, a great road ahead of you. It's not, it's not <laughs> yeah. meant to sound daunting. What are you going to do? Would you have any any future plans to expand the site, the shop? Well, it's always expanding. I mean, we're constantly adding inventory and, and new things to it. So it's already doing that. Um, but really, I'm just, I'm doing my best to try and uh, keep making content that, that's helpful to people. You know, I, I kind of look at the business model for the shop in that I create content that helps people fish better and hopefully in return, they come back and support the shop. So, you know, whether it's, I mean, we have our three instructional films, modern nymphing, modern nymphing, elevated and adaptive fly fishing. And if you want full like feature length, very good instruction with excellent cinematography and, and production value, um, Gilbert has delivered that and they are, those films are what they are because of Gilbert. Um, and we all, we actually have all three of those films together in one place now called modern nymphing masterclass.com. So if people want to go check that out, it's pretty darn inexpensive for three good films, but besides it's, that, you know, it's supposed to be yeah, just I mean, fantastic. Gilbert did a great job and, you know, Lance and I kind of wrote the outlines for it and, and did all the, on camera work, but behind the camera and behind the editing screen, you know, Gilbert Gilbert's is responsible for how good they are. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Um, so, you know, in my own small way on our YouTube channel and through the blog and whatever else I've, you know, tried to keep that 
education rolling for folks because um in the end like i, I kind of think about it uh, and when i was a kid there was far less material out there available obviously i mean um the internet wasn't around you know and uh what was was fledgling and so i used to just have my mom take me to the library literally every two weeks as soon as I had read the next batch of books that I was allowed to check out and I'd read those fly fishing books and then the next batch. And I was lucky enough that the County library system would, you know, move back books back and forth if you requested them. So within a year, I'd pretty much read every fly fishing book that was in the County library system. And so that's how I learned a lot of concepts, but the books only got me so far from a conceptual standpoint, actually learning how to execute it, I had to go out and figure it out a lot myself. And so I feel like there's room for books, but also supported by video. And I also have a book for those that, you know, don't know, it's called Tactical Fly Fishing. Um, and it's, I've been told that it's a really good Euro nymphing book. And that also, that always kind of hurts me a little bit because <laughs> I feel like, I feel like most, when people say that they skipped reading about half of the book since <laughs> since a lot of it wasn't about your own thing, but, <laughs> but they seem to gloss over that and just read the parts that they want to read or focus on them. Uh, it wasn't called tactical Euro nymphing folks. It was called tactical fly fishing, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I feel like there's learning to be done for different types of people from both and that they support each other really well, you know, like that the text can support the video. And so we've, um, we've kept kind of both going. I just finished another I just submitted another manuscript actually on a lake book. Um, but my goal is to try and keep helping people fish. Uh, and also it keeps me motivated to maintain my time on the water and attempt to continue to get better. And whether that's through, you know, competition or just, or just fishing and, and improving myself, uh, and my craft, both, both avenues keep me motivated and, I'm never lacking for desire to go hit the water. So do you feel like you get put in a pigeonhole? It would be very frustrating. Oh, for absolutely. To yeah, yeah, put absolutely. all that wonderful content out and then still have it come back to nymphing. Well, didn't you know you're you only know how to spay cast and, and steelhead fish? Yeah. Fish. yeah. <laughs> That's all you know how to do. I've heard. <laughs> and be a woman, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do you what do you have any <laughs> do you have plans to break out of the box or are you just happy to milk it while you can? Well, I mean, I've done plenty of other things, uh, but people just seem to gloss over them. Um and that's I and I think it's just mainly because so many people have gotten into urinimping and really you know, seen the benefits in their own fishing over the last couple of years that that it's just rode its own groundswell, um, right place, right time, right material, you know, in some ways, I think we kind of helped start that, especially with modern nymphing. And it's kind of then got the snowball effect where it rolled down the hill and has gained its own momentum, um, as things do in our modern world these days. But uh at the same time like i've talked about written about um and demonstrated lots of other things that that uh you know people don't that they don't remember and that's okay uh, it's it's also just a matter of what sells you know um in our shop it's kind of sad but 
but uh, whenever I add dry fly specific or lake specific or other method, you know, specific stuff, um, and I look at the sales figures or I do a video that covers one of those topics or some topic other than you know anything, and I look at both the views and the sales figures off of it, like it's almost like, why do I even make these other things? Cause nobody's really paying attention to it comparatively, you know, but at the same time, it's to keep me, it's, it's really at that point to keep me motivated. Like I know George, he gets so sick of just talking about nymphing cause he got pigeonholed in the same thing. That's why, you know, he wanted to write the streamer book. Um, and you know, he's not, he's certainly not limited to just nymphing for trout, but, but he got pigeonholed into being that guy after writing dynamic nymphing. Uh, and so I think he's wanted to spread his wings and talk about some other methods that he loves over the last few years. And he's done it well. And now he's back to talking a little bit about nymphing again. And it's fine, you know, because <laughs> that's I, the other thing. When I podcasted him, he was I, like, can we not talk about being, let's not get too technical. No problem. We will not get too technical. <laughs> we'll talk about yeah, other stuff. I mean, See, and I, I still don't mind the technical stuff because actually um, that's kind of where I feel like I fit at this point uh, because, oh boy, do a lot, you know, everybody has their own opinions out there, right? And they are very easy to find on the World Wide Web. And those opinions, you know, some of them are backed by reason and logic and good thought. and. Uh, in certain cases, their opinion's probably more correct than mine is. Um, and there's room for everybody's opinions. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of material that's, if not incorrect, at least unhelpful out there. Uh, and a lot of confusion because everybody talks about their way of rigging, their way of doing this, their their way of this method, that spotting that take, you know, fishing this type of water, that, that uh, it can the amount of information we have these days is so vast that it can be hard to sort through it all. Mm -hmm. So I guess where I have been lucky is that uh, from a competitive fishing standpoint, I've had enough success, you know, domestically and internationally that it's given me a, a little bit of, you know, credentials that people can look to, to like, this guy at least knows how to fish. Hopefully he's not going to fill me up with a load of crap if I ask him a technical question, you know? Yeah. And I will have an answer for you, whether it's the best answer or not. I can't vouch for that, obviously. Maybe there's some other way to do things besides how I'm doing it that's better. But it will be a, an answer that if you execute it will at least work, hopefully, as it's worked for me. And I'm not going to, I'm also, one thing I have committed to throughout this whole process, I'm not going to fill people with bullcrap information. I'm not going to be dishonest i absolutely like if people will ask me about gear they send me an email give us a call you know ask us about this rod versus that rod i don't care uh what it is i'm going to give you an honest opinion um even when it's a company that a lot of their other rods i love maybe but that specific one maybe i don't you know or something like that like uh, there's no room for for fluff that's unhelpful. Um, I've been lucky in that I've had people that have taught me in in my life and helped me get to where I'm at. And I guess at this point, you know, I feel like it's maybe on me to help pay that forward a little bit. And thankfully I've been able to do that. But also, 
you know, support my family and some employees and, and help other people as a result. Yeah, absolutely. Um, taking you out of that corner, your Lake book, what are three aha moments that the reader might have Mm -hmm. when they get this new book? Okay. Well, so the interesting part, um, I guess I'm just taking a different look on it. Uh, for most North American readers, they have gotten a lot of their information over the years from folks like Brian Chan and Phil Rowley and kind of the, and like Denny Rickards and the other guys who are uh, big names in the very small world in the North America that is still water fly fishing. Cause let's be honest, <laughs> it's a, it's a tiny pie compared to the rest of the folks that are fishing rivers. Uh, whereas in, in the UK, it's the opposite. Yeah, they like love it. Still water fishing is huge. But and it, and really it's about availability of fisheries and what it costs to go fish them. Um that's the reality. It's much cheaper and more affordable for guys in the UK to go uh fish a local stillwater where they pay their 20, 30 euros or what you know, pounds, I guess, uh for the day than it is to go rent Atlantic a beat on the salmon. Test. Yes. Yeah. Crazy. You know? So so it's really popular as there as a result. Here it's kind of the opposite. There's so many, you know, opportunities for public water on rivers um, with exceptionally good fisheries that that's what's been, that's what's drawn everybody in. And then those who've been in the stillwater game kind of have a somewhat similar way of doing things with a lot of the same thoughts, a lot of the same flies. Um, there's, a, I would say, a really, like a lot of North American fishing, there's a really strong match the hatch um, framework for what those guys do. And all those things are good and all of them help people catch fish. Um, but the funny thing is just like in the nymphing world, the competitive side of things, there's some of those methods that have crossed over and we do them very similarly, but then there's a whole world of very different stillwater fishing, whether that's lock style drifting from a boat or, the styles of flies that we use, the retrieves that we use. It's uh, oftentimes much more of a reaction bite game, kind of like streamer fishing in a river than it is like slowly crawling a leech along the the bottom and trying to make it look like a leech or, you know, X, Y, Z. There's lots of methods where the you're still casting and retrieving flies, but the details of how it's done um, often is different in the competitive game. And so I'm trying to, bring a lot of what I've learned from international competitions on lakes and make that available for, for anglers in North America that maybe have been exposed to a different perspective on stillwater fishing. Um, and hopefully they'll find that by having both perspectives, they can add, you know, extra elements to their game that help them catch fish maybe when they've struggled to do it in the past. Um, but also there's a, just like my first book, there's a really strong biological component to it. Mm. Um, you know, the first chapter of my, um, river book is all about making a plan based on observation. It has really nothing to do with, with techniques to begin with. And part of that is a big focus on trout biology and especially metabolic rates at different temperatures and how that really kind of influences your day from, the first time you see the water before you even decide, you know, how to fish, you better know the temperature, especially on lakes, because the willingness of fish to chase flies is drastically different at 40 degrees than it is at 45 or 50 or 55 or 60, you know, 
Um, so that can influence your presentation and how you choose to, to retrieve your flies or, or present them. But also there's a strong focus on understanding how lakes behave because they're so different than rivers. Most people won't know this, but I did my master's project on a lake. It was on a big reservoir. And so actually a lot of my fisheries uh, background, at least my research focus background was on limnology or freshwater sampling of stillwater bodies. So there's a lot of limnology in the book to help you understand lakes and how they function at different times of the year and what different wind patterns can do, um, things like that. And then how that can then influence your actual angling decisions of where you go on the lake if you're observing, you know, these conditions or what features to look out for, what, what's going to separate one place in the lake from the rest of it. Because that's the biggest puzzle in stillwater fishing, if you ask me, is that they're the you know it's so much more of a three-dimensional puzzle and a river let's let's be honest like okay sure could they be from top to bottom yeah but they're somewhere <laughs> in there right and it's like three feet four feet maybe six or something in a deep part of the river that you got to sort through and really the bulk of the time they're probably down near the bottom so if you put your flies down near the bottom and you find a place in the stream where there's fish as long as you're doing things relatively correctly there and you don't have egregiously bad drifts you're probably going to catch some fish at some point but in a lake you might not even be fishing where there's fish the layers like are so complex and yeah. you're right depending on time of yeah. year and ice and wind yeah cover, all those things do you cover sage in your things. book uh sorry what was that do i cover this, what this the sage i recently learned this word through jeff Liske oh, in one of our classes do you mean like the secchi depth yeah yeah oh so it's not french i'm not i'm putting a french no, it's secchi. Yeah. So can in limnology, they call it the secchi depth. Can you explain? I it, didn't know. I didn't. I didn't cover that in the book. That's too much oh. of a science geeky thing. Okay. But I'll tell you about it here. Yeah. So yeah, there's yeah. a disc that, that when you're doing limnological sampling, there's the, it's an old system now. It's it's back from the 70s, I think. But there's something called the morphoadaphic index, which is how you can essentially put a still water into the box of being oligotrophic, mesotrophic, or eutrophic. So either super sterile in the middle, nutrient-wise, or really productive and fertile. Um, and one of those uh, variables that you need to measure is how clear the water is. And obviously, the more sterile a water is, the clearer the water is going to be because there's less dissolved particles of algae and everything else in there that are supporting that base of the food chain. So the instrument that you use to actually take that measurement is called the secchi disc. Oh. And it's basically a, a disc that has a weight on the bottom. And on the top of it, as you're looking down on it, it's there's like uh, two white pieces and two black pieces. It's almost like looking at a, 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 a yin-yang, but it's like a pie, <laughs> like pieces of a pie on a disc. And you drop that down on a rope at, you know, hopefully like high sunlight for the day. And in the non-glary side of the boat, so that you have maximum visibility, you drop that down, and at the depth where that secchi depth disappears, that's your secchi depth that you write down on the sheet and let you know how how far light penetrates essentially in the lake. It's a measurement of that, and the deeper oh. it penetrates, the kind of the less fertile that like that lake is likely to be. How do you spell that? Because I think we're talking about something different. I'm gonna Google. Uh, S. Well, yeah. So it'd be S E C H 
high, if I remember right. Maybe it's S-E-C-H-E. I'd have to look back at some of my old sampling notes. I love this. I I love getting nerdy. What did you call it? geeky on this stuff? Yeah. Um, you know, he I think when he was talking about it, he was talking about wind and typically pu- pushing um an abundance of water into one particular area of the lake. And oh, okay. What it, what it meant to well, so what what I typically cover in that, I didn't use that term. Um, but I go through all the temperature gradients that happen as that occurs and in how the book? that ends up. Yeah, in the book. Yeah. Cool. So I'll take you through the temperature gradients. Some of the wild temperature gradients I've observed on certain lakes based on that, but then also like how that plays into where you should fish on the lake based on that surface temperature. Um, it, it may end up being that the lake's kind of prime-ish everywhere and that probably doesn't have a big uh, effect. But for instance, there's a reservoir that I fished back when I was in grad school it's this really long, super narrow, thin reservoir. It's, I think it's nine miles long or 12 miles long, something like that. And uh, it has trout, but it also has walleye and smallmouth bass in it. And there was a spring that I was fishing there in the in the spring where there was this persistent north wind that for a, over a week had been coming from the north. And it, so I there was ramps on each end of the lake. So I put my boat out on it and fished the uh, south end of the lake first so basically the side that the wind was blowing toward and the temperature down there was in the 60s like low 60s and um you know that's still fine for trout but it's warm enough that the the bass and the walleye were active and when i was fishing along shorelines and stuff all i was catching was bass and walleye i wasn't even getting very many trout i would get a few trout here and there but they had kind of started to go down in the calm a little bit, but the bass and the walleye were still up shallow on the banks. So I was having fun catching bass and walleye on the banks. Uh, two days later, I put my boat in on the north ramp. It was 12 degrees colder up there because of all that warm surface water that had been, you know, heated up by sun uh, and contact with the air had blown toward the south side of the lake. And it was bringing up cold water from the bottom of the lake on the north side of the lake. So it was like in the 40s up there high 40s and there were no bass or walleye that were eating my flies up there it was only trout fishing um so by choosing which side of the lake i actually went to in that case i pretty much dictated not only which species i was going to catch but how active the fish actually were yeah right oh that's interesting i know you don't want to give too many points away on the book especially because it's you said it's still in its man- manuscript yeah phase. I, <laughs> I still actually haven't gotten my first draft back from the editor so he's supposed um, to do it this week we'll see but what what is if you had to choose one aha moment where an experienced angler one of your buddies would read it and go whoa that is something i hadn't thought of mm. can you pinpoint one fact that you think will knock socks off Boy, um, that is a good question. I think I would hope that maybe it's a, an accrual of lots of stories like that last one and that they all add up to maybe a, a, a kind of a system of, of way of fishing things. Um, I think that there's a lot of differences in rigging that are aha moments that will come out of it, like leader design. Uh, there's differences in the actual retrieve. And um, one of the things that's not really talked about much at all in North American fishing is what's called the hang. 
And it's essentially this moment at the end of your retrieve where you pause and just gradually lift your flies up to the surface and you'll get, there are days when you might get 75% of your takes on that. And nobody that I know here is doing it because they, they'll, you know, if they're casting from their float tube or their boat or whatever, they'll retrieve it up the boat and then they'll get to where there's, you know, five, 10 feet of line out and they'll just pick it up and cast again. Um, and if they haven't paid close attention or if they have played, paid close attention, There's they'll probably following uh, it right up. Yeah. That <laughs> all happens the time. all the time, all the time, all the yes. time. You'll see a boil, you know, whatever, right at the end, that should be an aha moment. Oh, okay. How do I actually target this fish? Well, the way that folks in the, you know, the UK circuit especially have done it is through the hang and you can hang at different, uh, distances from the boat, you know, um, and prolong the hang if it's they're really focused on it. I've even had days where they were so focused on the hang that I basically didn't make casts that were longer than about 30 feet. And the whole point was to just get my flies to depth and then start raising them up again. And that was the only way I could really, you know, get fish consistently because on the retrieve, they didn't want it. They just follow, follow, follow on the retrieve. And then it's on the hang when it's actually ascending and they think it's getting away that they actually commit to your fly. Um, so that's one aha moment, I think, for folks who haven't been exposed to it before. I think the biggest change, though, the biggest aha moment for people coming from North American fishing would be lock style fishing. Oh, I was going to um, ask you, did you include that? Yeah, I mean, there's a huge focus on it. In fact, all so I did, I, I wrote the book in a similar vein as to how I did my river book in that I lay out the theory and the concepts behind everything and how I like to fish in the first, you know, set of chapters. And then the last chapter, it's either the last chapter or the second to last, um, one of them is flies. The other one is case studies. And so I take you through a series of eight or 10 case studies. I can't remember how many at this point. I, as soon as I finished the book, you know, I stashed it in the hard drive and I don't think about it. So, um, so yeah, uh, I take you through case studies where I execute it and all of the 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 boat sessions are are done lock style and i i actually show you exact drift patterns that i used from drone shots where i draw it on the page of this is why or how we covered here and how, where we set our drifts and things like that um and so yeah it's a big focus of the book because it's such a fundamentally different way of approaching a reservoir or a lake than anchoring up and casting to the same spot over and over um it's completely different it's it's almost i, I think the, the reason why i'm so in love with it is because it keeps you moving and it keeps you engaged all the time even though it's slow and, and it's almost like the lake version of drifting down a river and pounding the banks with streamers mm -hmm. you know it's, i've had some of my most target. productive days but there's people listening right now who have no idea what we're talking about they're thinking lock and yeah. key can you yeah. explain lock style just yeah, i so, know we're wrapping up the time here yeah. but so lock is l-o-c-h so as in how they say loch in Scotland. Uh, that was, I know I butchered that. I'm sorry, you guys. Um, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> but loch style fishing. Uh -huh. uh, and so that's what they call their their lakes in Scotland. And the now, I don't know the ins and outs of the history of locks, like traditional loch style fishing. I've, I've read a little bit about it in some books from Ireland and, and the UK. But um, the modern version of it um 
is what a lot of the, the traditionalists refer to as long line lock styling because the original lock styling, they would drift in boats out on, out on these lakes, especially like it's really famous on the Irish uh, lofts, <laughs> which they call them lofts there, like uh, loft mask and corib and all these ones that have wild brown trout. And during the mayfly season, the Danica hatch season, they have these wet fly rigs with a bushy bobfly out top and then two or sometimes they'll even have like five fly rigs in, in a lot of those places. But historically they had, you know, extremely long rods, like cane poles that were 12 plus feet long, like horsehair lines and leaders and cat gut, you know, for the leader. And they'd have this bob fly that they just bounce along in the surface. And then they essentially have these wet flies below that were emergers. And the bob fly is supposed to pull the fish to the top. Like it's in a, you know, attracting attention and if the fish don't take the bob fly then hopefully they see one or the other flies on the rig but you're drifting in with the wind and the boat is perpendicular to the wind and you're casting downwind all the time that's the two main points of lock style fishing you're drifting with the wind and you're casting downwind the boat is perpendicular to it now in modern times as the competition scene took off in the reservoirs and in uh england especially like the midlands reservoirs um then they also have added drogues to help slow the boat down. They're kind of frowned upon in a lot of the Irish or the Scottish scene. They just use what are these big clinker style boats. They're these sort of uniquely shaped, really narrow, but deeply penetrating um, hold boats where they catch a lot of water when they're drifting perpendicular like that. So they kind of slow the drift of the boat down on its own. Um, but if you want to slow it down even more, then you can add what's called the drogue, which is basically an underwater parachute. Bag. Yeah. And for all of the boats that we have in the U.S., it's almost 100% necessary to have a drogue just because, except on non-windy days. But our boats aren't built to drift that way. And so if you don't have one, you're going to see ya. Good luck, you know. <laughs> Too fast. <laughs> see you on the other side of the lake because <laughs> that wind is going to take you there. Um so the drogue is to help you slow it down, and then you're casting downwind and retrieving back to the boat. That's at the root. That is what I consider. I'm sure I'll get plenty of people who think of it differently, especially where it's it originated. Yeah, that is. <laughs> yeah, but that's the roots. Or that's the method of lock style fishing. At least how I I was taught it, um, and how I had to figure it out when I was first learning it back in my early comp days, um, and the key difference for you is that you're now covering new water all the time you're covering new fish but it's the opposite of trolling so you're not you're hanging the flies behind the boat and then running the boat over the fish that you're about to catch you're casting downwind ahead of the boat before the boat gets there and fishing to fish that haven't seen the boat yet and that haven't been drifted over so the hope is you're getting fish that are fresh you know that aren't spooked and they're uh, you're also just constantly covering new water. And it's a it's a more engaging way to fish still waters for me. Honestly, it took still water fishing and made it from something I, I did just because either the rivers were blown out and I didn't have anything else to do or like, you know, there's big fish in lakes. So as a young kid, I would always like to go fish lakes because I could catch big fish bigger than I could a lot in the river. So those were the two uh, reasons I fished lakes when I was a kid. But these days, I love lake fishing just as much as I do river fishing. And right now, we've been, we've had a really heavy snow year, and now we're getting all this rain on top of it. Our rivers are totally blown, have been for almost a month now. And I don't care. 
because I've just been lake fishing and it's been great. And it, even if you're somebody who thinks that lake fishing is dumb or boring or whatever, like if you actually grab a boat and you do some lock style fishing, it has the, you might find that you like it a lot and that it takes uh, still water fishing and adds a new dimension that, you know, keeps you engaged a little more than just casting and looking the bobber while you're anchored or something. Not that that's not effective because it is, but it's just a different style of fishing um, that, especially if it's a slow day, can get quite boring. It takes the still out of still water because it is. It's almost like having somebody pull pull you to yeah. fl- flat. Yeah, right? the the wind is pulling you. Yep. And and if it's the if it's a type of day where you actually have sun, oh, you can, you can see it. Uh, yeah, you can uh, you can sight fish from from the boat, and it's it's fun. I'm excited to see this book. When do you think it's going to go out? Boy, I wish I knew. question. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the last one was, uh, yeah, it takes at least a year from the day that you submit a manuscript to where you might see it in print. Yeah. But because I'm kind of already halfway through the actual year, I'm betting it's going to be closer to 18 months. Yeah. Well, we'll look out for it and I will link everything up. Um, again, your website, just one final plug is www.tacticalflyfisher.com. Excellent. Fly Fisher. Uh, fly, fly Fisher. Thank fly you. Fisher. Excellent. Yep. Perfect. Well, it was lovely to see you again. It was way too short. We had you as a, a tying guest well, on no, our I, members. I think night. I might have, yeah, I might have droned on longer than your your normal podcast. So I, I apologize for those of you who are actually willing to stick with it. No, no, it's fantastic. I think you're just a you're you have so much knowledge. It's impossible. I always knew it was going to be a little bit longer than usual. So I hope you have time for it. I know you're busy with kids and business and all that stuff, but it's okay. Luckily, my wife's a nurse, so on the days that she isn't working all day. And uh, she's pretty willing to take care of the kids since she doesn't really see them on the days she is working. So yeah, she's got so a we're down. we're good for tonight. It was a good it was a good date for for uh, sitting down. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. Like I said, I will link everything up um, to your website. And how can people reach you? Yeah. So if you scroll to the bottom of the website at tacticalflyfisher.com, you'll find our email and our phone number there. Um, I don't remember what the phone number is off the top of my head, but the email is info at tacticalflyfisher.com. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. And um, don't be a stranger. And we'll talk to you when your new book is released. Yeah, hopefully. All right. Maybe we can (laughs) do another chit chat then. Sounds good. Don't hang up.